An American Airlines 737 is landing at Kingston, Jamaica when something goes wrong. What caused this disaster on a dark, rainy night? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hi, friends. It's been stressful. So stressful. We were going to record on election night, and then we opted not to, for somewhat obvious reasons. So here we are on Thursday night. (laughs) It's still, well, it's slightly less stressful. I don't know. It's all still pretty stressful, but that's all we're (laughs) going to say about it. I'm drinking spiked eggnog. Life is good. I'm just drinking eggnog. Eggnog is, one. eggnog is the good nog. I didn't get any nog. Not sponsored, but Royal Crest Dairy has the most amazing eggnog. And you can fight me on that. Totally fair. It's pretty good. What are we covering today, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> today we are covering American Airlines Flight 331. Thanks to Joseph Mohammed for requesting this episode. And on that note, Joseph is working with an organization to... Restore. Restore. That's the word I'm looking for. They're looking to restore in L-1011 in Trinidad and Tobago. He's our big listener there. He's working with a team that's trying to restore this old L-1011 back to British West Indies colors. They're trying to make the L-1011 in pretty good shape. And he just wanted us to basically mention that, and that's kind of a cool thing they're doing. W-I-A, which is British West Indies Airlines. Air, air, airplane? Airlines? Air, air, airlines, Airways? I think. West okay. Indies Airlines, I think. or Airways. It's oh. a historic airline to Trinidad and Tobago, which is now Caribbean Airlines, so they got nom-nommed. Yes. And the L-1011 was an important to... Trinidad and Tobago. Yes. Mm-hmm. And much of the Caribbean, and they're trying to restore it, and he just wanted us to mention it yeah. and plug it a little bit to give it a little bit more oomph. Yeah, there's a group on Facebook for it. It's called Plane Saving Niner Yankee Tango Golf November. We will have a link to that group in the description. So with that being said. (laughs) So today we're covering American Airlines Flight 331. This happened on December 22nd of 2009. This was a Boeing 737-800 with the tail number November 977 Alpha November, which if you know anything about American Airlines fleet, it's just another 737. They have so many of them. This flight was to be from Miami International Airport in Florida. What? <laughs> yeah. Not huge friends of Miami. No, not at all. To the Norman Manley International in Kingston, Jamaica. For the record... During this, we may refer to this airport as multiple names, as it was referred to in the report, as both NMIA, and then the actual airport name. Is KMJK, which makes it really confusing, because they took off out of KMIA, and they landed in NMIA. So, sorry in advance. They're the same airport. They do the same thing that we do at DIA, where we call it DIA, but it's not actually DIA. Yeah. Throughout this, I just refer to it as Kingston. Because it's the airport for Kingston. The captain for this flight was to be Brian Cole. He was 49 years old. He had 11,147 hours total, of which 2,727 hours were on the Boeing 737. The first officer was to be Daniel Billingsley. Couldn't find an age for him anywhere. It wasn't even in the report. 
he had 6,120 hours total, of which 5,027 of those were on the Boeing 737. He had more time on the 737 than the captain, and almost all of his time was on the 737. Uh, 1,100 hours were not out of his 6,120. Nice. Yeah. There were to be 145 passengers, three infants, and six crew members for this flight. I hate when there's infants on board. There's yes. always infants on board. You just don't hear about most it most of the time. Most of the time they just count them as passengers not or they don't. always. Not all flights have infants. No. Most flights have infants. Yes. Okay. But are you identifying it as an infant or a baby? Because I consider those different. Lap infants, I'm assuming, is what it's referred to yes, here. Yes, that is. That's true. For uh, manifest reasons. Yep. The crew began their day in Miami. They flew from Miami to Baltimore and then back to Miami, where they then changed planes for the route to Jamaica. The captain was to be the pilot flying, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for this route. The dispatch documents were provided from the American Airlines base in Dallas, Texas, to the crew. The dispatch documents included weather for the en route as well as at the destination, as well as applicable notice to airmen, or NOTAMs, so just important information. Which I'll mention later. So when I say no TAM, don't get confused. Yes. We've there talked are, about no TAMs before. Yes. There are quite a few abbreviations in this episode, and we're sorry. Just as there are most in aviation. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> most of our episodes have yeah, abbreviations. Pretty much always that way. <laughs> aviation is extremely abbreviation heavy. The crew checked the documents, then prepared for the flight. The forecasted weather included turbulence over Cuba and rain at Kingston. The NOTAMs informed the crew that the normal primary alternate airport for the flight of Sangster International in Montego Bay was planned to be closed for maintenance during and around their arrival time at Kingston. So they didn't have a backup airport. So that airport couldn't be their backup. So they had to choose a different airport. So then another alternate airport was given to them, which was the Owen Roberts International Airport on Grand Cayman. I liked Grand Cayman. Yeah, it's nice. Nice beaches. And that was in the event that Montego was in fact closed when they got there and they would have to use an alternate. This airport being further away, though, than Montego, meant that the flight took on more fuel just in case they would need to divert to Grand Cayman. I mean, that makes sense. Yes. Smart move. Yes. But this nearly led to a different issue, which is that the airplane would be very near its maximum landing weight upon arrival at Kingston. Ooh. In other words... They had one chance to land. Yeah. I there believe, was no going around. I believe their max landing was 144,000 some odd pounds. And that was about what they were going to be at when they would get to Kingston. So they would have to try to burn off fuel. But there was also another issue with that. I mean, still landing at Kingston with that much weight could damage the airframe, potentially, all those things. And they still only had enough fuel to do one attempt at Kingston before they would have to divert. Oh. So it's a tight situation to be in. All of this was pretty tight, but they planned it out. The simple instrument approach light system for runway 12 at Kingston was no-tammed as unserviceable as well. So Awesome. Yeah, some of the approach lights to runway 12 at Kingston were not working. Which is similar to Miranda's most recent Miranda sode. Please refer to Patreon. The crew briefly discussed with the cabin crew about the expected turbulence over Cuba, but did not mention the weather at Kingston, as they did not do any further briefing with the cabin crew about the flight. 
So literally, they just told him, hey, it's going to be a little bit bumpy over Cuba. About it. The flight was then delayed leaving the gate at Miami as they had to remove a bag that had been already loaded for a passenger that did not board the flight. Okay. This happens a lot more often than you you know. Bags just get on the plane for... <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes the passengers don't run to the gate in time, or they decide to take a different flight or something. There's always weird things. It, it always surprises me. There's always weird circumstances, and the person basically just didn't make the flight, so then there was a bag on the plane that was loaded for this passenger, and they had to find it and unload it. Oh, that sucks. Can you imagine trying to get through all that luggage to find this one bag? Yeah. Yep, that would suck. Finally, the airplane pushed back from the gate and began to taxi, but then the crew received a, not a notification from the airplane system of an air conditioning pack temperature controller fault warning. So they were worried that the AC wasn't working. Could make the airplane either hot or very cold. The taxi was paused and the crew contacted the American Airlines Dispatch and Maintenance to discuss, then turned to the minimum equipment list to determine if, if this was a required piece of equipment to fly. So... The minimum equipment list, we haven't really talked about it ever, but it's in every single airplane in the United States, and actually in most airplanes on Earth. Minimum equipment list is literally a list in the manual for that specific airplane, not the airplane in general, that specific airplane, what that specific airplane is allowed to fly with and without. So if the, the piece of equipment isn't listed on the minimum equipment list, you can fly without it. For example, a CVR is always on the equipment list. Yes. You need that. You cannot fly if that circuit is popped, as we mentioned in a previous episode. That's right. just a specific example. Right, exactly. There's lots of little pieces of equipment that you'd be surprised aren't required. A lot of them. This one wasn't required. I think we've mentioned that on certain planes, I think it was an A320 we mentioned, you don't need one of the thrust reversers. Correct. You're fine without it. That is not part of the minimum equipment list. You only need one. The crew was able to legally defer the maintenance issue for the flight. This was the only deferred maintenance issue at the time of takeoff. The aircraft finally made it to the runway and took off at 8.22 p.m. Eastern Time. So, this is a night flight in the dark. During the climb out, the flight encountered some turbulence. The flight was to climb to flight level 350, or 35,000 feet, and did so before later receiving instructions to climb to the final cruising altitude of 37,000 feet. The flight proceeded to cross over Cuba, where it encountered turbulence as expected. That was, quote, fairly rough and, quote, really bumpy. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> fairly rough and very bumpy. Yeah. I feel like that's a lot like when we came back from Baltimore? Seattle. Seattle. Oh, it was yeah. Seattle. Yeah. In February. We hit, we came in over a right snowstorm. Over a snowstorm. <laughs> that was and the most turbulence I've ever experienced yeah, in my life. We were the first airplane to take our route into Denver, and they didn't know that it was going to be so bumpy. They apologized. <laughs> they apo yeah, the captain was like, We're sorry. They probably didn't send anybody else through there after that. <laughs> yeah. We're like, We didn't think it would be that bad. And there it was. Bad. Zero out of 10 would not recommend. Yeah. The cabin crew suspended their in flight service several times for the turbulence. So they weren't providing drinks. Get over it. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, that's a pretty normal thing to do is to just like, oh, well, if we hit a specific bump, then our cart's going to fly everywhere and all the drinks on everyone's lap. So let's just pause for a minute. Yeah, exactly. The captain requested that the cabin crew prepare the cabin for landing earlier than usual due to the turbulence and the weather at Kingston. The turbulence decreased as the plane neared Kingston, however. 
As they descended toward Kingston, the American Airlines dispatch informed the flight crew via the Aircraft Communication Addressing and Reporting System, or ACARS, as it's known in aviation. ACARS is a very uh, handy tool. It's basically a way they can write you a message in the air. ACARS most famously was used during 9-11 to inform all crews across the world to land their planes. ASAP. Yep. It was a secret and silent method of informing the crew to land. And only trained pilots would know how to observe it. Ab- observe the ACARS system. So this was an important tool during 9-11. And it's also just in general how dispatch communicates with the crews of flights to let them know of important information once they're airborne. We've also mentioned it in Air France 447 and Qantas Flight 32. Right. I was just going to say, isn't that like you put in a code... And it tells the dispatcher what's going on? No, that's the transponder, and that just tells ATC what's going on. This literally, dispatch can write out a whole, basically, email to the airplane. Hmm. So they did. And the American Airlines dispatch informed the flight of the planned closure at Montego Bay, making the primary alternate the Grand Cayman Airport instead. Because of the extra fuel needed to fly to the alternate, the crew discussed the planning for their approach into Kingston. They made the decision that if they made an approach into Kingston and they had to do a missed approach, that they would immediately divert to Grand Cayman, as expected, after a single attempt at Kingston. So, they just were going to go straight over to Grand Cayman if they weren't going to make it. Which is smart. I'm having a hard time figuring out what went wrong here, because I realize we haven't gotten there yet, but... Well, just wait, because there's so many things that go right here all the way until the end of this that it's Almost mind-boggling that something went wrong. Yeah, it seems pretty pretty standard so far. Mm-hmm. The crew then received an update on the runway conditions at Kingston, which were reported to be, quote, wet. Great. Just... Yes, but... Nope, no better descriptor than that. <laughs> that's it. I will get into that. Yes. Great. For the record. But there was no information given about the braking action or the runway contamination amount to the flight crew. The first officer had flown into Kingston many times before including the week before on the same flight sequence. So he had done the same Miami to Baltimore, back to Miami, down to Kingston. He had also previously landed there at night and in the rain over the preceding year, so he was reasonably familiar with the airport and the approach. The flight crew then briefed about the arrival at Kingston just before beginning their descent. So flight briefs are really important things that happen before each phase of the flight. And we haven't really talked about that much either, but the crew literally discuss exactly the plan for the next part of the flight. So this is before they even begin their descent. They did a a brief about their descent and approach into Kingston. I've talked about them on my Miranda episodes before. Yes. They're very important parts of flight. Highly important. At that time, they decided that they would make a straight-in approach for runway 1-2 based on the weather. There was a tailwind for the landing on runway 1-2 which normally is a highly recommended to avoid action. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, and it's wet? Mm. Yes, it's, it's normally very recommended to avoid. But it was within the aircraft's limitations, however, as well as American Airlines' limitations. And the alternative approach would have had them performing a circling approach to runway 30 with a low ceiling, which poses a really high risk of CFIT, or controlled flight into terrain. 
And there's a few other things wrong with that. So what a circling approach is, is literally they use the instrument landing system, or ILS, for runway 1-2, and then they get down to the minimum descent altitude for runway 3-0. Once they reach that minimum descent altitude, they perform the circle all the way around to 3-0. Maintaining visual contact. Maintaining visual contact with the airport before landing on runway 30. This and is the same landing approach sequence that we discussed in Air Blue Flight 202. Yes. And this is not much of an instrument approach, which means it requires a lot of visual, visual. reference to the runway and they were concerned about the weather uh -oh. not working in their favor to come around to runway 30. Because of this, they were confident of their decision to make the straight-in approach for runway 12 as their final decision. And this would have a much higher likelihood of success. The minimum descent altitude was 1,150 feet above sea level, or 1,140 feet above the ground, with a visibility of 3.7 kilometers for the circle-to-land procedure. So that 3.7 kilometers is the minimum amount of visibility they can have, and they were worried they weren't going to have that. The most up-to-date METAR, or meteorological report, at the time, for the airport, was 1,400 foot above ground level broken clouds. So this was pretty close to their margin, only about 250 feet. And so they were a little worried that this was too close to the clouds to maintain visual contact for that circle approach to 3-0. The flight crew were only aware of the ILS approach to runway 1-2, and the ILS to 1-2 followed by the circling approach to 3-0 is the only instrument approaches available to the airport. The crew felt that they knew the plane and its characteristics well enough to know that they would have enough landing distance with the tailwind and the wet runway to stop the plane in plenty of time. The crew did not perform any landing calculations for the landing, however. The runway at Kingston is 9,000 feet long, which in theory for the 737 is way more than enough distance. I know. I know. <laughs> I'll get into it. Christy's yes. looking like she needs to say some stuff. That part is going to make you really angry. Awesome. Okay. Get excited, friends. Yep. The captain had briefed that they would land with flaps 30, so 30 degrees of flaps, which was normal for the weather situation that they were going to be encountering at Kingston. After they had discussed whether to use flaps 40, which is the normal for any normal landing with the 737 in American Airlines, but they were worried that flaps 40 would affect the performance on landing with the wet runway, so they chose to do flaps 30. Can you tell me... What the difference between flaps 40 and 30 would be flaps, on the plane. Flaps 30, so is less flaps, and it requires a higher landing speed. But in theory, it also means the plane will float less. Because with a higher amount of flaps, the airplane will be traveling slower, but it'll also want to keep flying, even at a slow speed. So there's a potential the airplane could float. Okay, so there's it's a trade less drag on the plane yes there's in theory less drag but also less so you have, have a to... slow cape less slow airspeed capability yeah so you have to go in fast otherwise you stall the airplane but you're also more right. likely to land quickly right now fast is a, t is a relative term because it's not a whole lot faster but it's still faster than flaps 40 okay so it's a trade-off there's a pro and a con on both I could see why they wouldn't want to float with the wet runway. Yes. Both crew members had performed the ILS approach to runway 1-2 many times in the past, and they were both familiar with it. They also decided that they would set the auto brakes in the airplane 
to the 2 setting, which is a low-middle setting, but they later changed this to the 3 setting, which is a middle-high setting on the approach. It's 3 out of 4. So the auto-brake, literally, once you touch down and there's pressure on the wheels, and then the spoilers are up and the reverses are activated, the airplane automatically applies the brakes slowly to the airplane at a given amount based on your setting. And that's supposed to slow the airplane down in a certain amount of distance. They decided to do this change to the 3 setting on their final approach. The captain requested information from the air traffic controller about the airport conditions and reports from other landing planes. The air traffic controller replied that visibility at the airport was good and, quote, no one was reporting anything out of the ordinary, end quote. At 9.47 p.m., the flight made initial contact with the Kingston en route controller while cruising, and they were told to maintain flight level 370, or 37,000 feet, and were given the instructions to enter the ILS approach. So entering the ILS approach doesn't just mean turning for landing. It actually requires them to follow all the points along the way for that inst- to line up for that instrument approach. Yeah, you have to line up with the ILS right. to so, use it. So every airport has a whole bunch of sets of approaches, and they reach out like 100 and some odd miles from the airport. So basically they were told to enter into that whole approach sequence following all the waypoints along the way that lead them around a circle into land. American Airlines Dispatch then sent an, another ACARS message to the flight at around 9.48 p.m. to report a special METAR from 20 minutes prior reporting that there were thunderstorms and moderate rain in the area of the airport and the winds were 310 at 9 knots, so 9 knots of tailwind on their landing on 1-2 and visibility of 3 miles. These winds favored runway 30, as expected, but they were still going with the runway 12 for their approach. The captain then made a public announcement for everyone to be seated and to inform the crew to prepare the cabin early for landing due to the expected turbulence on descent, as expected. The forward cabin crew accomplished their safety checks and took their seats. The rear cabin crew were unable to complete their safety checks, before the turbulence became too bad, and they had to take their seats. So the rear cabin crew didn't complete the safety checks on the airplane before landing. Well, I, I, you might have just said this, but what's included in the safety checks? Uh, I didn't. I don't entirely know on the 737. It varies between airplanes, but mostly it has to do with checking doors, checking everybody's buckled. And oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, checking yeah. that all the emergency stuff is like, in place, everything they is go secured. Up and down the aisles, making sure there's no extra stuff. Your nothing that's going to fly around. Up, your seat backs up, etc., etc., etc. There's all sorts of stuff to that. Yeah. Okay. So at that point, hopefully everyone knows, but um, no one's going to check. Right. At 9:51 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 15,000 feet at their discretion. At 9.58 p.m., so seven minutes later, the crew contacted the approach controller to ask if any other aircraft had landed in the last hour and had reported turbulence on the approach. The air traffic controller reported that only one had landed, but not from the north, as they were expecting, and didn't have any problems coming in. So, in other words, they didn't expect any turbulence. This, though, this call was made to the approach controller before the airplane was even officially transferred to that controller. So they contacted the approach controller before they were given the instruction. They then switched back to the en route controller after that conversation. There's actually capability in the cockpit to be listening to both at once, but only be communicating with one. The crew then discussed their fuel quantity 
and using the speed brakes and going to a lower altitude to burn off sufficient fuel to land below the maximum landing weight of the airplane. At 10.03 p.m., the en route controller finally transferred the flight to that approach controller they previously contacted. At the time, the flight was descending through 18,000 feet. The approach controller told them to expect the ILS for runway 12, and again cleared the flight to descend to and maintain 15,000 feet. And the flight read this back correctly, the flight crew. Air traffic controller then informed them a minute later that the weather was the same as reported to them earlier, but the wind had now changed slightly to 32010 knots. So still a tailwind, slightly behind to the left. With the wind change, the air traffic controller informed them that they may want to expect the circling approach for runway 30. The flight, the flight crew acknowledged this, but stated that they would go ahead and take the straight in for runway 12 with the tailwind anyway. At 10.14 p.m., the flight entered the ILS approach path, and the air traffic controller cleared them for the ILS, and then informed them that the wind was 320 at 15 knots, so now 5 knots faster. It should be noted that 15 knots is also the maximum tailwind allowed by American Airlines on the 737. The flight crew acknowledged the clearance, then the air traffic controller asked if they understood the winds and asked if they could still make the straight-in approach. The flight crew responded that they had received the wind report and again stated that they could still make the approach to runway 12. The flight crew had weather radar on on both of their displays and had no wind shear warnings at the time. At 10.17 p.m., the flight was then passed to the tower controller at Kingston. The flight reported being on the ILS to the Kingston Tower for runway 12, at 2,800 feet, the air traffic controller responded and let them know that the winds were at 320 at 12 knots, so a little bit lower, and within the limits of the 737, and asked if they were still planning to land on runway 12. The flight crew again confirmed their intention to land on runway 12 and asked for the wind one more time. The air traffic controller informed them that the wind was 320 at 1.4 now, so 14 knots just under their maximum limit of tailwind. ATC then cleared them to land on runway 12 and stated, quote, be advised runway wet, end quote. Thank you. Thank you. Not that we didn't already know that. Right. Still <laughs> doesn't tell them anything. During this whole thing, you can tell the air traffic controllers are really trying to convince them to do the circling approach to runway 30 and are really surprised that they're taking runway 12. Well, they were too heavy, so... No, it's they, they didn't have the ability to maintain visual contact during the circling approach. They were way too worried about maintaining visual with the airport and not hitting terrain. Yeah, that makes sense, though. I mean, we've covered several crashes where that was the case. Yes, they felt that because this was within the tailwind limit of the airplane, they had plenty of runway, that they'd be fine. Plus, it's dark and rainy yes. outside. I, I would be a little nervous, too. They still felt that this was pretty confident decision the way they were going. The flight crew thanked the tower for the information and continued their approach. At 10.20 p.m., the flight crew advised the tower that they were three miles out. The air traffic controller advised the flight crew that their landing clearance for runway 12 was still valid. At the time, the flight was flying through heavy rain, as it had been for most of the approach. Rain at the airport and on the radar was showing light to moderate rain around the airport. The plane was correctly established on the glide slope, and the speeds were correct, and the final approach was smooth with little to no turbulence, just a lot of rain. 
As they approached, they could see the visual approach slope indicator, or VASI, lights, and they were on a perfect approach for the runway. They had configured the airplane for landing early to devote their focus to flying the airplane and the landing itself, making sure that they could visually see everything on the approach. While on final, the first officer was monitoring the tailwind component on the navigation display in front of him. It had been dropping as they descended, and on final, it was showing about 8 to 9 knots of tailwind component, which is well within the limit of the 737 per American Airlines. The autopilot was disconnected at 550 feet, at which point the captain hand-flew the airplane, but he left the auto throttle engaged to help maintain proper approach speed. This is legal per American Airlines. However, Boeing does not recommend it. They were perfectly on the approach path to touchdown and perfect on speed, but still dealing with heavy rain on the windshield with the wipers running heavily. All was looking good, at least they thought so. The real numbers, however, had the plane slightly above the perfect approach path as they crossed the threshold at 70 feet, about 37 feet high. Not normally a big deal, but they were also having to battle with a few other factors on the final approach, like the tailwind and the wet rain, wet runway, everything. As opposed to dry rain. Yes, totally. As With the rain and the wet runway, all these factors, it played into all of this. The captain pulled back on the control column to slow the descent rate four seconds after crossing the threshold, at which point he also disconnected the auto throttle. The auto throttle had been maintaining the airplane at V-REF, or the reference airspeed for landing, plus five knots at the time for the Flaps 30 approach, with the conditions putting the airplane at 148 knots indicated, or 162 knots ground speed. So their actual speed over the ground is 162 knots, which is pretty fast. With the tailwind, that's kind of expected, but it's only only 148 knots over the wing of air. 14 seconds after crossing the threshold, the captain reduced the throttle to flight idle. This was 3,800 feet down the runway. So they've chewed up 3,800 feet. They've chewed runway. up more than a third of the runway. Okay. Give me a second. My brain's trying to process. Mm-hmm. Didn't they have the auto brakes on? They do. They They're not on the down. ground. They're flying. Oh, they're floating? They're floating. They're floating. Uh-oh. The airplane passed the normal touchdown point at 38 feet above the ground and continued a very shallow descent for 10 seconds until touchdown at 4,100 feet down the runway. This is 1,130 feet past the touchdown zone allowed by American Airlines. A commercial power outage meant that the airport was operating on a generator power, which also meant that there weren't many lights on around the airport or in the surrounding inhabited areas, so they didn't have much reference as to their speed or altitude or anything like that related to anything around them. And they have their wipers going at a million miles a minute. Yes, and dealing with rain. Yeah, but so they touched down at that point. They still have close to 5,000 feet left, right? Yes. So they should be okay, right? Mm. They they touched down with a 14-knot tailwind, one knot short of the limit on the the 737, and a 7-knot crosswind component from the left. The spoilers deployed with the initial wheel spin on touchdown, but the plane bounced and touched down again 200 feet later, at which point the autobrake 3 activated. This was 4,600 feet past the threshold, 
At that time, the first officer called the speed brake deployment, as is normal, and the thrust reversers were then engaged with green indications from the captain, the green indications showing that there was a proper deployment of the thrust reversers. The captain quickly realized that the plane was not decelerating as quickly as he expected, as he overrode the, the auto brakes by putting maximum pressure on the pedal brakes, and he set maximum reverse thrust. The first officer also began applying full pressure to the pedal brakes. The captain attempted to keep directional control of the plane, but the nose wheel drifted about 20 feet to the left of the center line as the airplane quickly approached the end of the runway. The aircraft slid past the end of the runway at 62 knots ground speed, which is about 80 miles an hour. It then passed through the chain link perimeter fence and crossed over a road about 12 feet below the embankment they were on. The airplane then impacted and came to rest on a rocky and sandy shoreline just short of ending up in the water, as the airport at Kingston has ocean on either end. Awesome. Yep. Fourteen passengers were seriously injured, but nobody died. Thank God. The six crew members and the other 134 passengers had only minor injuries to no injuries at all. However, the right engine and the right main landing gear were torn off of the airplane once they crossed the road and hit the embankment. You don't say. Yep. The other two landing gear collapsed as they ended up in the rocks. The fuselage separated into three large sections. That tends to be a thing. Yes, it is. That's because that's <laughs> Must exactly... Must be the way that they're made. That's exactly right. That's exactly how they're made. It's because of the, the way they're cockpit, manufactured. The back, and then the middle of the fuselage. Yep, that's how they're manufactured. So that's usually how it goes. But no one died. Nobody died. The underside of the airplane was severely damaged, as were the wings and the flaps. And kind the, of expected. Yep. And the right fuel tank was ruptured, of course, because the engine was torn off. The only thing that was damaged other than that was some rocks and a chain-link fence. So ultimately, this could have done a lot more damage to a lot of other things. This was an active road at the end of the runway that they could have hit things. Yeah, but it was at night. I yes. mean, it was rainy. It was actually. Late at night. So I don't have this in my script at all, but there was a slight upslope to the end of the runway, so it yeah. actually launched them a little bit further. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whee! Ooh, but... and they couldn't do a go-around because they were too heavy. I'll get into that. Oh, so they could? Wait. Oh, they wouldn't have gone around. They'd have just diverted. Wait, what? They had enough fuel to just go to Grand Cayman. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't have well, made yeah, another attempt. But... Yeah, they could have done a missed Once approach. Once they touched down, could they have? You can. It's they, not great. They could have done a missed approach. The problem is they already had the brakes activated. Ah. You can until thrust reversers are activated. So. I thought they were too heavy. They didn't have enough fuel to try again. But they also had too much weight if they had landed any earlier. Yeah. They had bled off just enough fuel to make the landing. Hmm. Okay. So it was one shot or nothing. This investigation was performed by the Jamaica Civil Aviation Authority, but had the help of an accredited representative from the National Transportation Safety Board. Because it was a Boeing 737. And an American airline. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That too. Important. Yes. Thanks for your input. <laughs> You're welcome. It was necessary. Now, normally I would go into more of a narrative about how one realization led to another and another, but the Jamaicans are thorough and have yeah, left me a little time to get creative with my eloquence. Yeah, what the heck? 
So I'm sorry in advance for all the technical mumbo jumbo I'm about to spew. Also, if I miss something, I'm sorry. Also, can I just note really quick that the story, the history of flight section for this was 12 pages, which is the longest one I have ever read. Anyways, continue. So there's a lot and I might miss something. I panicked. I'm sorry. The first section of the analysis is dedicated to the airport and its provided services. Let's talk about the runway, specifically its lighting. As Dick mentioned, the approach lights for runway 12 were not serviceable for the last three weeks because there was an electrical fault underwater. Nice. Well, that's unfortunate. It requires scuba divers to come out and fix it. Yep. Then that's not a quick process. Anyway, this was mentioned in the NOTAM in their dispatch documents. And these lights were not required for operation under Instrument Meteorological Conditions, or IMC. However, investigators found that these lights would have been helpful. Yeah. No, you don't say. (laughs) To discern depth perception in the dark. Another lighting system is the touchdown zone lighting. These were not standard for Category 1 precision approach runways, but the ICAO recommends them regardless. With the lack of these two lighting systems, American Airlines Flight 331 flew into what is called a black hole approach, as it was dark, rainy, and there was no horizon to be seen. These systems would have helped establish a reference of position to the touchdown zone, or TDZ. Yep. Now for the runway surface, which I personally find most to blame, but whatever. This runway did not have the problem of no grooving or insufficient friction, as we have discussed in a previous episode. Which is a relief, but pilot reports, or PIREPs, as well as data from the flight data recorder, showed that the runway probably had fair-slash-medium braking action performance due to the rain, not wet-slash-good, as the flight crew had been led to believe. Per American Airlines flight operations, wet is fine. So being told something is wet doesn't really mean anything, so they default it to mean wet-good. Yeah, I talked about this a little bit on one of my Miranda sodes. You need to be more specific about the runway contaminant because a lot of water, not great. Right. Investigators found that the airport did not have any procedures for inspecting the runway during these kinds of weather conditions, meaning that the tower didn't have the information to relay to flight crews coming into land. Yeah. So the airport staff has to go get the information and give it to the tower. But if the airport doesn't go get the information, the tower is just SOL. That makes sense, though. This is probably a small airport. It's in Jamaica. It's small-ish. It's one of their bigger international airports. I mean, it's not as big as some of the airports we have here. No, No. but it's one of the only ways to get to Jamaica. Well, yes. I realize that. It's just... It's a sizable enough airport. See, in most places in the United States, we have airport ops. Airport operations. Yep. And they have equipment that they can literally drive out to the runway measure it, and then just call the tower and say, hey, just so you know, this is how much standing water's on the runway. Which did not happen here at Kingston. Right. They don't, they didn't have that in place. So when the crew was told that the runway was wet, it was just that wet. And American Airlines standard operating procedures say that wet, good, which is what they had assumed it was, means less than an eighth of an inch of water, whereas the tower literally just meant that it was wet. They didn't know how much, they just knew that there was water on it. They're very descriptive. <laughs> great, great. Again, great description. Right. Uh, it's raining. <laughs> so yes. the runway has to be wet. The ICAO recommends giving a braking action report. Now, this whole thing 
about the runway conditions is something that the JCAA Air Traffic Services Manual of Operations dictates that controllers provide to flight crews on first contact. They must relay current runway conditions and latest breaking action reports mm-hmm. or state that none such reports have been received. But there was no agreement between the airport and the tower for the acquisition of such information or relaying of such information between the two. It's also an ICAO requirement, which is why it's in the the JCAA requirement. Man-ups. And they never did this. Nope. They never reported a breaking action condition, nor was it ever asked for by the flight. The Manual of Operations, or Man-ups also said that the runway being used should be the one most in line with the wind if the wind is over five knots. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Wait. (laughs) Which didn't happen, for the record. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, since it was 14 knots. Mm -hmm. As such, the controller told the flight crew to expect an ILS into runway 12, but with the wind, they may have to perform a circling approach for runway 30. At this airport for this aircraft, a circling approach is limited to 3.7 kilometers of visibility at an altitude of 1,150 feet. The ceiling, or the bottom of the clouds, which is kind of not intuitive. No. The ceiling was at 1,000 feet, so a circling procedure was not technically allowed, and the crew opted for a straightened runway 12. But there was another way that we have not discussed. Another way that was not mentioned to the flight crew by the controller. The other way was approaching runway 30 with an RNAV approach, or area navigation, which is performed using GPS. The flight crew was not aware of this option. Yeah, did anybody catch my little Easter egg in this story where I said the flight crew were very well aware of the ILS approach to 1-2 and they had performed it? They were only aware of that and the circling approach to 3-0, and then I continued on. There's a reason for that. That's because there was another approach, but they didn't know. And they weren't told about it either. I'll get more into that later. Great. I have a problem with both sides of that. Now, we're going to get into the flight conditions or weather. Hat. This was a visual or instrument conditions approach. Oh, I thought you were... (laughs) (laughs) There's my fun. I was like... Wait, what? <laughs> and whether or not this was visual or instrument. <laughs> you finished that sentence and I was like, oh, okay. Other mm-hmm. weather. Got it. I figured that out while I was typing it. I was really upset with myself. <laughs> <laughs> VFR minima for this airspace were ceiling, or bottom of the clouds, at 1,000 with visibility three statute miles. The official METAR for this approach and landing was a 1,400-foot ceiling, broken, which is fine, but 3,000 meters of visibility, which is about two miles. According to the METAR, this should be instrument conditions. The Manly Approach Radar told the crew that visibility was five miles with moderate rain. This information did not come from an official weather report, though, but rather the tower controller's own observations. Oh my gosh, seriously? Yep. They looked out the come window and on. said, ah, that's five miles. Yep. That's not, no, unless you have a point of reference that's five miles away from you. I mean, I don't know if they did or didn't. They might have, because the airport is kind of on a peninsula, and the city's actually away from that. They probably could see the city out of the window, and that city might be about five miles away. Point is, they weren't using official information. Mm -hmm. But that unofficial information meant it was visual conditions. Correct. Which is not great. No. The METAR says one thing, and now the controller's saying another thing. 
It cannot be found anywhere that the tower told the flight crew the METAR's information or that the flight crew got that METAR on the ATIS. The recorded history shows that the crew was sent the METAR between 10.15 and 10.17, but the CBR did not show if it was read or not because of this busy stage of the approach. This is about the time that the controller should have conveyed runway conditions and braking performance or said they didn't have information on braking performance, but no braking performance information was relayed and the flight crew did not ask for it either, showing their low level of situational awareness at this stage of the flight. At this point, the crew is flying into the airport with one and a half miles of visibility, heavy rain, and the flight data recorder shows that they were landing with a 14-knot tailwind and a 7-knot crosswind, Yep, as, I, as Nick mentioned. They were never at any point told about heavy rain conditions, and that's a decently strong tailwind that they're working with. There was another condition that had gone without notice by both the dispatcher and the flight crew, but was provided on page 10-7X of the American Airlines Flight Manual Part 2. Kingston had the possibility of standing water. Which is... Conducive to hydroplaning. Awesome. Yeah, so... It was well known that the runway at Kingston could just collect water. That's considered a runway contamination, which once you introduce that word contamination, it's that has a completely different implication to flight crews. Wet. Right, than wet. Contamin- contamination can really screw your day up. Contamination. Because you hydroplane. Right. It's just like if you're driving your car in heavy rain and you lose contact with the road. Right. Contamination in aviation can be anything from ice, snow, rain, dust, Slush. you name it. Anything that can collect heavily on the runway and cause problems, that's considered cam- contamination. And as soon as you introduce that word contamination, it's actually an official meaning in aviation that tells the flight crew exactly what to do. There are contamination procedures in their flight manual and, their, and the aircraft operations, and they are supposed to do something completely different for a runway contamination versus a runway wet. This condition somehow never came up before for the flight crew or the dispatcher, so they were unaware of the problem somehow. I Somehow that means that they've never encountered standing water, either the dispatcher with all the flights they've dispatched or this particular flight crew. Or if they have, it's just never been a problem before. So I don't know how that would have come to be, but that's what they said. Now... Why hadn't they gone around to the other side using the RNAV approach? Both of the flight crew in interviews stated they were unaware of such an approach to Kingston. How? That was my big question. Yes. Shouldn't that have been in the flight management system? It was, but American Airlines standard operating procedures have the crew program the system for landing prior to the approach briefing, before descent, as it were. When they were doing this, wind was at 310 at 9 knots, suitable for runway 12. So they proceeded with that and did not bother to look it off for runway 30. At 10.04, the crew was informed of winds at th- from 320 at 10 knots. This was 18 minutes before landing. 10 minutes later, they were told of winds from 330 at 15 knots. These were two notices of increased tailwind without the tower mentioning the RNAV approach at all, but rather just asked if they still wanted to go straight in without offering an alternative to the circling approach. In the flight crew's interviews, they definitely made it out to be a one or the other scenario. They were not aware of the third option, which still baffles me, but yes. we'll move on. There's a few things with this, though. An ILS is extremely accurate, however... I'll get into that later because the airports wasn't. And 
an RNAV is not a super accurate approach in comparison. Now, that's kind of a weird thing because an RNAV is actually a GPS approach, which tends to be pretty freaking accurate. But an ILS approach still proves to be one of the most accurate forms of approach. It'll get you literally within like a 10-foot margin of error of touchdown on the runway. Well, that's if it's performed because perfect. it like catches the airplane. It like directs the airplane down to the yes, runway. It's a frequency that tells it exactly how to go. Yeah. And again, we'll talk about it in a minute, but this airport wasn't correct. That didn't matter much because they hand flew the final part of the approach and made the corrections as they were supposed to. But you should anyways. Case. But the RNAV was probably skipped over partly because of that and partly because they had already pretty much made a decision for which runway they were going to land on. Yep, earlier also, in the flight. They also both knew the ILS approach, and they knew it was the only ILS approach. So they wanted to do an ILS approach, and an RNAV, okay, fine. But the weird thing to me, even more than that, is in their dispatch documents, and just with them, they should have the current plates for the airport, which are just literally paper maps, basically, and charts of the airport to tell you all the different procedures for the airport. And in there would definitely be the RNAV. I'm not going to go into it much further. That's what I got. I'm sorry. Investigators determined that if they had done the RNAV, this would have been avoided. Yeah. Fairly obviously. Yep. Now, for Crew Resource Management, or CRM, a favorite on this podcast. Mm -hmm. The crew did not discuss any change to their approach as they received more information about the increasing tailwind. Nothing more about using more flaps or more braking. This is indicative of bad CRM. Investigators surmise that this may be due to attention tunneling from the rain as well as their fuel situation and the selections they had made in flaps and speed reduction to burn fuel. Now for the actual landing. The plane crossed the runway threshold at 70 feet above the ground, 20 feet higher than ideal. The captain switched from using a heads-up display to visual cues. The flight data recorder showed a nose pitch up and reducing the rate of descent, but the auto throttle was still on speed mode, as we had mentioned, meaning it was maintaining speed and it began floating. That is why Boeing does not suggest doing that. Yep. And neither of the pilots noticed this. This could have been from lack of lights, the rain, and all their other duties. The captain disconnected the auto throttle 35 feet above the ground and pulled the throttles to idle and began feeling for the runway, not flaring. The first officer's responsibilities at this time are to monitor instruments, pitch, spoiler deployment, reverser deployment, and auto brake activation. He said he had a lot of confidence in the captain's abilities and it was possible that he became complacent while distracted with his normal duties. Both reported that they floated a little. They thought they had landed, though, at the 1,500-foot mark, which would have put them within the landing zone. They didn't know they had floated a lot, and neither of them called for a go-around, or what would have just been a missed approach at that point. To them, the float probably felt relatively normal in timing, but they probably didn't account for the fact that they were doing 162 knots over the ground versus a pretty normal 130 so Which is that. significantly less. As it turns out, there is nothing in the operating manual that says the first officer, while pilot monitoring, could call for a go-around. Or that the pilot flying, the captain, had to acknowledge it. The flight, In fact, the flight manual said the captain could disregard a monitoring first officer's call to go-around. Uh, excuse me? Yep. 
How about no? All of this may have made the first officer reluctant to call for a go-around or missed approach. Yeah, no, that's horrible. Yeah. And this is in 2009. Yep. Yes. Like, uh, this isn't the 1960s. So the FAA recommended three months later, after the accident, that, quote, one, either the pilot flying or the pilot monitoring may make a go-around call-out, and two, the flying pilot's immediate response to a go-around call-out by the non-pilot the non-flying pilot is execution of a missed approach. No argument. You are doing it. If someone says go around, you go around. There's no arguing. You just do it. Yeah, American Airlines, give it the times. Gosh. <laughs> okay. There is one more thing that the flight crew failed with. When interviewed, the first officer said that they did not have to calculate landing distance before each landing. This is probably the one thing that bothers me the most. They believed in this instance with a runway of more than 8,000 feet, a tailwind of 15 knots or less, on a wet runway with a maximum landing weight of 144,000 pounds, flaps 30, a safe landing was guaranteed. This estimation is called an advanced analysis by the American Airlines Flight Safety Program's manager. When this individual, the program manager, was asked, Quote, why did the American Airlines 331 flight crew use an assumption that if the runway was more than 8,000 feet was wet, quote, wet, the tailwind was less than 15 knots, aircraft at max landing weight, then it was safe to land? Is this method approved by American Airlines, taught by American Airlines, commonly used by American Airlines flight crew? He responded, a runway condition report of wet with no other modifying information, for example, Breaking action poor would indicate breaking action good. An acceptable technique for a flight crew who flies into a certain airport frequently is to conduct an advanced analysis of the worst case scenario for the landing runway. That is, for a known landing length, breaking action, wind component, landing weight, etc. The flight crew could determine in advance that as long as they landed below the maximum weight for these worst case conditions, the runway length was acceptable. A review of this advanced analysis prior to landing using the actual conditions at time of landing is acceptable. So, end quote of all that. This estimation doesn't factor in method of braking, reverse thrust, or distance between the touchdown point and runway threshold. This method was advocated for by the FAA in 2006, but not since. American Airlines stated that no such concept as the advanced analysis was defined, approved, or trained by American Airlines. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. And see, I don't like this at all because most airplanes, including the 737 as far as I know, have a distance calculator built into the airplane that, itself. You that just, takes into consideration all those factors that were missing. You just plug in the numbers. That's all you do. And it tells you what you're max distance for landing is going to be. Now, my thing with this is, even if they had done it, they were still using conditions of wet. Right. True. So part of it was they didn't know how wet the runway was. They didn't know that braking action was not good. But if they to had... To be fair, if they had touched down before where they were, they probably could have stopped before the end of the runway. Right. If they knew that they were going to require 7,500 feet of runway, then they would have known that their absolute maximum touchdown point was the end of the touchdown zone. But so, see, if there was no indication on where that was, it, it would be very, very hard to make sure that you touched down at the right spot. And still, they're, yeah, they're, 
their disorientation on landing meant they floated a lot further than they thought they did. If they knew they had passed the touchdown zone, they probably would have gone around. But they didn't know based on their their disorientation on landing. So this is definitely an instance of it's their fault, but also the airport's fault. It's not just one. You can't argue just one, because if one had done their job, this wouldn't have happened. Right. So, it's it tough. As we often discuss, it tends to be it's a, a perfect, perfect storm. storm of things. All of these things also, though, made the Kingston Airport technically not entirely legal to land under the conditions it was in. Yes. So, it was undergoing certification at the time. Which is why it didn't have a lot of things. Also, one of the things you might be asking, oddly enough, and I didn't realize until they mentioned it at one point that they failed in this part of the certification, is they didn't have a runway and safety zone. You know, that collapsible part? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so you guys had to do the same thing I did. I was like, oh, I totally forgot that exists. Uh, They didn't pass that. Obviously. They still wouldn't. They still won't. The airport's still exactly the same. It's too close to the water. Well, you can still create an offset threshold in order to do that, but they haven't. The threshold is still the very end of the concrete. Yeah. Oh, that's bad. Which, normally with airports where they need to have that safety zone, then they'll just create the offset threshold. They'd put the threshold here and just make this an overrun area. So for those of you who are uh, new here, there's a part of the runway, it's not even part of the runway, it's at the end of the runway, past the end of the runway, where it looks just like a normal part of the runway, but underneath there's a grid system such that if a plane rolls over it, like they're going to overrun the runway, it collapses and it just like absorbs the nose gear and it stops the plane in its tracks. EMS. This doesn't have that. Right. EMS. And just the extra zone anyways to make sure there's a safety area. It didn't have it. So that's the Kingston Airport. They landed here. This was the other runway. But they landed here, but they had actually landed, like, here. Touched down here, and then they rolled down here. They weren't stopping, hydroplaned, drifted a little bit here, went through the fence here, across the road, and ended up in the rocks right there. That's nice. Yeah, I don't know. I think they probably shouldn't have even been able to land on that runway from no. the sounds of it the kingston airport really should have said you know what uh based on what our airport says you cannot land on this runway you're going to have to land on the other runway right or you're going to have to divert right but they didn't even do that that's the crash site as it was i don't talk much about it, the evacuation or anything there's some of it in the findings and the recommendations. We'll touch on that. Did this have a slide deploy inside, too? No, but there's one that just didn't. Oh, okay. Because it was jammed. Better than having it deploy inside the plane. Yeah. I'll make one note. In the story, at the point of the crash, they made a note that said the last communication, the last radio communication that the flight had was at 1022... And some odd seconds. But it doesn't say what they said. It just says that that happened. And I like it's not even in the transcript they then put after that. Oh, I was going to ask. I was like, do they put it in the transcript? The transcript is immediately after that. And it ends at 10.17 after they were cleared to land. They made a call at 10.22 and it's not in the transcript. So I don't even know what they said at 10.22. Oh, crap. I read something about the captain's crotch belt bracket. That broke. Which sounds uncomfortable. Yeah. That means his crotch <laughs> broke it. <laughs> I just like how, how you're like, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the folded front landing gear. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Breakity break. Break, break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's do some findings. So we're back on a separate day because we tried recording these. And it was really long. So we trimmed it back a bit. So here you go. So they found that the dispatch documents provided the crew were not provided with accurate and current report on the runway conditions at Kingston, nor was it required. That seems important to me. Yeah, a little bit. You know. Just a little bit. They found that the crew did not review documents that would have drawn attention to the standing water warning for Kingston, or that there was an RNAV approach for runway 30. And the air traffic controller did not inform them or offer the the option of the RNAV for runway 30. Which is just all around messed up. It is kind of all around messed up. They had a whole other option and they didn't know. And they didn't use it. And it wasn't offered. And no one asked. And, and nobody asked. Just, everything just went... Yeah. It was just a mess. <laughs> it, it was... was <laughs> no one, like... No one knew it was there. They weren't told it was there. So, like, why would they use it? Because no one knew about it. Right. And there were warnings in documents about standing water on the runways at Kingston. That neither the flight crew nor the dispatcher somehow knew about? And also, no one told them? Because, yeah. Yeah. They found that the flight crew's situational awareness was incomplete as they did not notice the many missing bits of information required to make proper decisions regarding the landing, ultimately leading to them landing on run- on a runway in heavy rain with a tailwind. This, Whee! Yeah. They just... <laughs> they didn't get any braking action reports. They didn't get any true reports about standing water. They didn't get any reports about... Heavy rain. Heavy rain. They didn't get any anything. I mean, it was... They were missing so many bits of information to help them make this decision. Which at that point, I mean, if you don't know enough information, my thought process would be go to a different airport. Go to the safest option. Or, yeah, (laughs) figure out, you know. One thing they were told was the increasing tailwind, and they did not act accordingly. Right. Well, technically it was still within limits for them, but they didn't know the runway condition 100%, so it's... It's yes, they, like, well, kind of, sort of, but not really. You they know? used American Airlines approved advanced analysis it, well, procedure, which advanced the advanced analysis procedure doesn't account for flap conditions, runway conditions, braking, braking runway distance remaining. As long as it's only over 8,500 feet, it's assumed they can make the landing. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much the advanced analysis. Which, to clarify, was not condoned by American Airlines but was used by their safety manager? Yes. Fun. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. They found that the flight crew did not perform a proper landing distance assessment, much like we just talked about. In other words, they didn't perform a full one. They're like, well, A, B, and C, so it should be fine, when really there's everything all the way to X, Y, Z that should be calculated into it. The airplane, most airplanes these days generally have a calculator, literally a computer, where you just plug in the numbers. This is the distance remaining. This is the flaps we're going to use. This is the tailwind component. What do we have? That would have told them at least some bits of information to help them make a decision. They found the flight crew briefed using auto braking setting 2, then later changed it to setting 3 on final, but 
auto braking max setting was the recommended setting for the conditions that they were in per American Airlines and Boeing. Which they ended up using anyway. No, they used three. They ended up using No, I mean like full, when they were using full Yeah, they brakes. used full brakes on the pedals, but it was too late. Well, yeah, but if they had put it to the max setting, it would have been like them putting full pressure on the pedals. Yes, so, close to, yes. Yeah, so but, they kind of used it, but it wasn't... It was delayed. Yeah. Yes. They found that the flight crew did not plan their landing for the most adverse, adverse weather conditions, as instructed by the American Airlines 737 operating manual. Expect the worst. Yes, always. and they did not. Yeah, always expect it's going to be worse than it is. And then if it's better, then it's just positive. Right. They found that the captain did not disconnect the auto throttle when he disconnected the autopilot. This is a move allowed by American Airlines, but not recommended by Boeing for the 737. Basically, disconnect the auto throttle on your approach because then you have control over the speed as well of the airplane. And you don't float. And you don't float. Their speeds were pretty on point for where they were supposed to be, but... They Still, floated. <clears throat> they floated. And this led to him pulling to reducing to idle late, and there was a lot of things with this. They found that the airplane crossed the threshold 20 feet above the ideal glide path, which isn't huge, but when they couldn't tell how high they were and how off the ball they were, it wasn't good. Yeah. They found that the captain did not follow the company's standard operating procedures for landing under the given conditions or the go-around procedures. We'll get to those in a minute. They found that the captain pitched the nose up, causing a flare, a long float before touchdown, and the first officer was not following the crew resource management requirements during the final stages of the flight to notice this and call for a go-around. They found that the plane did not touch down in the touchdown zone, but rather 4,100 feet down the runway, about 1,100 feet past the safe touchdown zone, plus with a 14-knot tailwind, so all-around bad. They found that the plane was landed with V-Ref plus 5, Increasing the landing speed and the distance required. So another th another reason they should have done their assessment. They found that there was a heavy rain and reduced friction on the runway surface at the time of the landing. Obviously, because water yep. causes a <clears throat> reduce in friction. Yep. Because it's slippery. Yep. They found that the flight crew did not apply full braking power until 6,800 feet down the 9,000 foot long runway. At which point it was far too late. To fix the problem. Stop. Yeah. They have 2,200 <laughs> feet remaining at that time, and that's not much. They found that the flight crew's situational awareness was degraded as the flight progressed, as was the crew resource management. This could have been a consequence of being on duty for 12 hours and awake for 14. Ah, oh, no, <clears throat> bruh. Their flight time wasn't more than eight hours, but their on-duty time was more than eight hours because you have a lot of time sitting... At airports that aren't accounted for. And this is a this is a systemic problem more so than a their fault. It is. This is definitely a systemic oh, problem. Oh yeah, no, in no, that's the company's fault. <laughs> yes. That's well, and it's not even just American Airlines. It's across it's the industry. Oh all yeah, industry. We've talked about it before with uh, several other flights where mm -hmm. they were just awake too long. Yes. 12-hour days, most Americans do not have 12-hour days. Right. Most people on Earth can't do 12-hour days. It's a lot. That's a lot of time to be awake and alert, and eight of those hours, you're flying. Right. And then you're also awake for 14 on top of that. Like, yeah. that's a lot. I'm and sorry. And you're only getting paid for those eight hours. Exactly. And it's one thing if you fly eight hours, like, as one leg of, of a flight. Like, you're... You're doing a 10-hour flight, and you do eight hours of that flight. That's because that's thing. a legal limit. That's one thing, because then you only did an eight-hour day. 
but to have all these separate legs that eventually add up to close to eight hours, making that a 12-hour day is significant. This is how most pilots operate. Well, and, and then you're tired and you when something like this happens when the weather's bad it's dark outside mm -hmm. you're worried about how heavy you are to land you're worried about do we need to do a go around what happens when that happens you know when right. all of this stuff is compiled on top of the fact that you're already tired right not a good situation it, yeah, exactly. it slows your brain processing power so you're slow to react and you're slow to prioritize yeah yeah exactly they found that the American Airlines dispatch personnel at Kingston did not properly follow procedures to measure and report runway conditions at Kingston, and the field report of 0 0.10 inches of water by the staff that was no more than an observation, not a measurement. So they had reported that there was 0 0.1 inches of water on the airport surfaces, and that was just by them going, mm, that's what it looks like through the window. They didn't go outside and measure any water anywhere. So nobody was measuring water at the airfield and reporting what was actually standing water on the airfield. They found that American Airlines had not made it mandatory in any document that the flight crews perform a landing distance assessment, though American Airlines Flight Safety Program's management expected that the flight crews would perform them anyways. But they also accepted the advanced analysis method in place of the bulletin related to landing distance calculations. This method did not account for flap settings, braking methods, or touchdown points, let alone runway conditions. And we, we talked about that. Yeah, we talked about that. But basically, the management said they didn't need to do an assessment, but it was kind of expected that they do one, but also they could use the advanced analysis. It's when you <sighs> it's when you have such broad expectations like that that you fall into these pitfalls because no one technically broke a rule. Right. And to me, that's kind of being lackadaisical about your runway assessment before landing, especially when you're dealing with so many weird conditions. Not great. No. They found that the FAA had given advice to assume that there would be standing water on a runway where reports are not given when rain was falling, but this was not included in American Airlines standard operating procedures, nor was it required to be. Basically, the FAA had said, just assume there's standing water at all airports when it's raining. I mean, that's not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Again. Expect the worst. Yep. They found that the flight crew had not been trained on tailwind landings, but were informed of the increase in allowable tailwind for the 737, and the crew were not required to check if the tailwinds were within limits for landing distance. So, that's kind of confusing, but basically they didn't get trained on tailwinds. But they did get told that the 737 got increased from 10 knots limit to 15 knot limit Which recently. seems sketch. Yes. And furthermore, they didn't know how this would affect landing distance because they weren't trained on it. So when you say they weren't trained, do you mean like they never did any simulator training or anything? Correct. Okay, that's a problem. <laughs> yes. Why would you want to land in conditions you've never had to practice for? Right. It's like if you put it into the mind of a musician, right? That's like putting a brand new piece of music in front of you and saying, I understand mostly the principle of it, mm -hmm. but am I going to play it perfectly the first time? No. Right. Because that's impossible, because right. it's the first time you're looking at it. Right. You should always practice landings. Yes. Period. So don't do a landing you've never practiced before. Agreed. They found that the runway conditions reporting was not adequate per ICAO standards. No reports were given, nor were they requested. Just, just the same, 
The reported heavy rain at the airfield was not passed on to American Airlines 331. This was partially because it was not required by the air traffic control procedures at Kingston. This also led to inconsistencies in the way verbiage was used to describe the conditions. So there was no consistency at all in the runway conditions. Nobody asked for it. Nobody gave it. The words they were using to describe the conditions were varying widely. And there was nothing that said they had to use anything consistent, not even in the ICAO. They found that there were no embedded centerline lights at Kingston or reflective paint as recommended by the ICAO. Just the same, there was no runway and safety area. So So they flew into a black hole. Yep. There was no EMAS. Yep. That either. Which, we talked about it when we recorded this the first time, but if you don't know what EMAS is, we've talked about it before. It's basically if you overrun a runway, the pavement collapses and engulfs the the landing gear, so the plane yep. just stops. Yep, it just brings the airplane so to an abrupt stop. It, it kind of sucks, but at the same time, the airplane doesn't go into a worse situation. Yeah, like over a road or into water yep. or into buildings, like we've talked about with several cases before. Yeah, exactly. It makes it so that the plane may be damaged, but at least no one dies. Right. Yes, and it doesn't make the situation worse. They found that the L1, or the forward left door, slide deployed prematurely, which caused the door to jam and become unusable for the evacuation. Which, by the way, I saw a picture of that when I did the blog post for this episode, mm-hmm. and that's crazy. The, yes. the picture, yeah. I was like, I didn't even know that could happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, right? <laughs> the door's like ajar, like it can't, you can't physically open yeah, it. Yeah, you literally can't open it. I was like, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> yep. If you if you want to see a picture of that, it's on the blog post. Yep. It's crazy. They found that the captain's seatbelt failed at one of the connection points. This was bad. You don't want it to fail. It was the crotch point. It sucks. Yeah, we talked about it in the first half. It's the crotch bracket. It failed. Which means that his crotch broke it. Which, ouch. ouch. <laughs> Doesn't matter what gender you are. Getting hit like that in the crotch hurts, period. So They found that overhead bins had broken loose and the passenger service units had fallen throughout the entire cabin. This is bad. Which, again, also crazy thing to see. Yes. And very dangerous. Yes. And aren't they not supposed to do that? In general, yes. And they mostly, most of the overhead bins didn't fall. Only around the fracture points they had fallen, which Mm. kind of makes sense because they're broken anyways. Because the whole plane broke? Yeah. So, but the passenger service units shouldn't fall. And they all did. (laughs) They found that both cabin crew members by the L1 door reported that the door to their emergency equipment under their seats had become jammed due to the buckled floor and did not allow them to retrieve their flashlights or other emergency equipment. Also, really important during an evacuation. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah, that should probably be reinforced in some capacity. Yeah, that's pretty much the recommendation later. <laughs> like, make sure that, you know, you can get to the emergency equipment for yep. the emergency. Yep. In case of an emergency. Right. They found that some parts of the plane's emergency lighting did not work after the fuselage separation. Duh. Well, that's just because wires <laughs> got pulled and stuff. <clears throat> yeah, they were all broken. They are broken. I don't... I don't think that's something that you can really ensure once the fuselage has failed because that wiring has to run across the fuselage. Unless you right. have individual battery it, units, battery units 
for each section of the fuselage. And you're asking too much because that's too separate. heavy. Separate, yeah. It's just it just wouldn't work that's because heavy. you also don't know where it's going to separate. It's heavy and potentially flammable. Well, you kind of know. I mean, we kind of know. Yes, you kind of know where it's going to separate, but at the same time, you still don't necessarily know when it could break somewhere else, and you, then you don't have lighting. So yeah. I mean, it's just it's this has never been something that's been a big issue because generally there's a big hole in the fuselage, and you know to go out of that. Yeah, yeah. There's that. Or like we keep saying, you read the safety information card. Yeah. You know the exit that's the closest to you. Yep. Just pay attention. <laughs> really, you need to memorize where you are in the plane so that you could find it in the dark. Yep. It's just a good rule of thumb. And also yep. listen to crew members. They'll help you get off the plane, too. Yeah. They found that there was no recurrent training required for air traffic controllers in Jamaica, let alone Kingston. <sighs> Come on, friends. ATC is one of the most important jobs in the jobs. world. Yes. They keep you safe in the air and on the ground. And yes, hence they found that there was a lot of problems with the air traffic control, like not doing their job, not reporting conditions, etc., etc. Not cool, dude. Yeah. They found that there was no clearly defined policy in the American Airlines Standard Operating Procedures to the effect that the first officer could call for a go-around with it being compulsory for the captain to cooperate. The captain could override the call if he did call for a go-around. Which is just bad crew resource management. Yes. I don't think in this case he would have, but they called it out mostly because he just could have called for a go-around and yeah. the captain could have overridden it. Yeah. But I don't think overridden. necessarily... Yes, overridden it. But but I don't think that necessarily this flight crew, that would have been the case. No, I, I think they just brought it up because it shouldn't even be a thing, right? Yeah. It should be with proper crew resource management. If anyone calls a go around, you do a go around. There's yeah. no question because if someone's calling a go around, that means they notice something that's not good and they need to go around. Yeah, exactly. They're not doing it to be like a jerk. Like, I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's it for findings. And oh my gosh, that was so much better than last time. There's no probable cause. Nope. Oh, yeah. Also, if you want to go read the findings, the report's on the website. Yeah, I narrowed those down a lot because there were actually 50 of them. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it spanned like six pages. Yes, and the recommendations I have also narrowed down significantly because those were also like 12 pages. <laughs> yeah, so if you ever want to go read those in their entirety, feel free but they were very repetitive, which is why we decided to re-record this half. Just nah. so you know, if you're curious, you can go see that on the website. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's you guys know, it's dry stuff. Yeah, it it's is. It's hard to read through. It is. <laughs> Believe me, I know, I read it. <laughs> and we're here so you don't have to. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Recommendations. They recommended operators should be required to perform landing performance assessments before every landing involving approved data and based on standardized methodologies using the most conservative conditions possible. So cover your butt. Yep. Expect the worst and just do the calculation every time. Yep. Which it doesn't take very long according to what Nick says because you just plug in the numbers and the plane does it for you. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, at least you have a general number to go on. You know what to do from there. It's not like we're in the 1960s and that kind of technology didn't exist yet. Right. And even then, I mean, there was kind of ways to do it. But everybody, every pilot is taught how to do these general numbers and uh, math. So just y use it. Use your tools that you have. Mm -hmm. 
It recommended to change an FAA air advisory circular issued to all air carriers to be mandatory that they assume standing water on a runway when rain is falling and assume that when heavy rain is falling that the runway condition is wet poor. Yeah. So Again, cover your butt. Right. The FAA has previously issued an advisory circular, basically, and it's not required that anybody follow that or create any procedures around it. It's just basically saying, hey, be aware. There's a problem. Just know that there's a thing here. Yeah, and they're saying that instead the FAA should change that into a mandate for standard operating procedures for all air carriers that says if that there is standing water on a wet runway and that if there's heavy rain reported, then to assume it is wet, poor conditions, yeah. not wet, good. B- bad conditions. Yeah. They recommended standardizing verbiage related to runway conditions and reporting because there just wasn't any during any of part of this. And verbiage is very important. It is. And in aviation, they learned that over the years and they have made it a key point to standardize a lot of verbiage in aviation. If you ever need to know how important it is, go listen to our Tenerife episodes. Yes. Yeah. That's a big one. They recommended standardizing tailwind landing training and train on the hazards of tailwind landings. So just make it common knowledge and train on it. Make it understood. So you know what to do when you have to potentially land with the tailwind? Yes. Have you ever done that, dear? Tailwind landing? Mm -hmm. I've never done one before, but, well, not sitting sitting here at Flight Simulator at home, anyways. Not in an actual aircraft. Not in an actual airplane, yeah. Got it. You recommended making mandatory in all air carrier standard operating procedures that either flight crew member may call for a go-around and it must be complied with by the pilot flying, whomever that may be. No questions asked. The phrase go around is heard. You go around. So the one stipulation they did give it to that recommendation is that the only allowable override to that is if you're in an emergency situation. Which makes sense, right? Being in an emergency situation, you could say go around and it's not possible. And it's not possible. So you're just going to make the landing anyway. Yeah. So that makes sense. But in general, that just says have good crew resource management. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Again, I don't know if the crew would, if one crew member would have overridden the other but they pointed it out that it wasn't in the standard it's a operating possibility. procedures. Right. Yeah. Which it would was have legal. Made, it would have made the first officer reluctant had he had that inclination. Right. Right. Exactly. They recommended to make it clear that tailwind landings on contaminated runways is firmly discouraged. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you think about it, the wind's pushing you forward yep. while you're landing and you're trying to stop. So you're trying to... Go yeah. against what everything is trying to do. Exactly. So just don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. They recommended ensuring that all air carrier flight crews are always following recommended procedures for landing on wet or contaminated runways and make it commonplace that air carriers do not allow tailwind landings on wet runways. So this is saying beyond making it common knowledge in the industry, like literally standard operating procedures for the airlines, that it's not yeah. a recommended move. Because then... It's double-backed, yes. and then most likely pilots won't do it. Yeah, exactly. They recommended changing the runways during the planned extension of the runways at Kingston to include some form of runway end safety area, such as EMAS, since both ends abut the sea. So they both go right to the ocean, basically. They did not put in EMAS. I know that. They made the runway longer... And they consider it to be a runway and safety area now, which I just... Eh, no. 
<laughs> I yeah, don't feel no. the same about this, but that's okay. I think there should be an EMAS. Yes. Cause I agree. That's important. Yeah. Oh, it's like on an island. Well, yeah. yeah, it's in Jamaica. No, it's on an island the, off the, the island. The airport itself is kind of on an island. Yeah. Well, kind of. It's like connected a little bit. <laughs> By yes. a road. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, the, you know. Like. They used to have a much shorter runway just north of where that whole airport is. It's in the middle of the port. The ocean. Yeah. Anyways. They recommended following all ICAO guidance related to runway conditions, measuring and reporting, and making standard a regular interval to check runway conditions. This is talking mainly to air traffic control and uh, airport authorities, basically, the people who are in charge of making sure the airport, the airport is safe, that they should have a regular interval when weather is bad to go out and check the runway conditions to make sure that it's not getting worse over, say, an hour. And then to... Have a standardized form of reporting that and reporting the runway conditions to all flight crews. They recommended using reflective paint for runway markings, which are highly recommended to avoid black hole approaches into Kingston the way they were. Especially since they don't have centerline lights. Right. They just could see the edges of the runway, basically, and that's it. Which, that's... it's really hard to tell where you are if you just see the edges of the runway. Yeah, that's just all around bad. This was... It blows my mind that they were even allowed to land there. Yeah, I, I'm... <laughs> this was in 2009, too. Like, we're not talking the Stone Age at all. This is like... This is, should be figured out by now. You to would me. think. They recommended that although it is not an ICAO standard, distance-to-go markers should be added to Kingston and should be required for the last 4,000 feet of the runways. So... So you know where you are. Right. So in, at most airports uh, around the world that operate with air carriers, they're big, giant, black, signs that just count down four three two one and just tell you each one of those is a thousand feet apart and they're either right or left side of the runway so you follow those markers and that tells you how much distance you have remaining from that point that could have helped them they could have found out oh this is not working yeah Ooh. <laughs> yeah they recommended touchdown zones and centerline lighting should be installed at kingston that would be better than the reflective paint if you ask me well yeah at least there'd be lights yes they recommended changing the way that emergency equipment is stored for cabin crew members of the 737. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nah, really? They, yeah, they recommended changing it to either be a sturdier piece of equipment that it's stored in, or that the door just be a softer material, so that way if it collapses, they can still move the door. Yeah, they can get out. <laughs> and get the stuff. Great descriptor. The lights yes. and Everything. emergency equipment. <laughs> They recommended f following the slide pack requirements in the maintenance manuals from Boeing. So does that mean they weren't following them? That's correct. So American Airlines had these in their maintenance manuals as well, but they didn't exactly follow them to a T. And they did find that the verbiage in that manual was not clear enough on how... The instructions were not clear enough on how to pack and repack that slide. slide. They recommended changing American Airlines 737 flight manuals to require that the auto throttle be disengaged when the autopilot is disengaged. I mean, that's just a no-brainer. The verbiage actually reads that the auto throttle should only be engaged when the autopilot, autopilot is, is engaged. engaged. 
They recommended that Boeing should design an emergency lighting system with multiple power points to avoid loss of lighting when the fuselage is fractured. I don't agree with this one. There's no feasible way to do that without adding a significant amount of weight to the airplane, and also it just doesn't end up being much of consequence. I mean, people were able to get out. Yes. That wasn't a problem. Right. They recommended avoiding using advanced analysis methods, especially when adverse conditions exist, and using full landing distance assessments instead of this. So, this is key to me. Doing a full landing distance assessment, just making sure that you know exactly how far you're going to need to land with that airplane in that condition under the configuration the airplane's in. Yeah. Rather than this advanced analysis crap. They recommend ensuring that American Airlines crew understand wet as wet poor, especially to overseas locations, rather than wet good when they're told the runway is wet. And this is really to separate that verbiage from wet and contaminated because a lot of the time in aviation contaminated really is just its own verbiage and contaminated means that that runway has something that will keep you from stopping and wet it's assumed that that doesn't mean the same thing it just means there's a little bit of water on the runway you'll be fine that's not the case in this case it was truly not what was happening the runway was quote-unquote contaminated there was standing water they hydroplaned bad Recommended updating air traffic control recurrence training standards for Jamaica. Well, yes. They recommended redesigning pilot seatbelts to avoid damage on the 737, such as that occurred on the captain's seat. And also, just to make sure they don't get hurt themselves. Yeah. Because, uh, ouch. Yep. They recommended that the runway at Kingston should be further grooved to prevent standing water when the runway is extended. They also... And I didn't put this one in here. They also recommended making sure that once it's redone and redesigned, that the runway has this typical thing that most airports have around the world, which is there's no ability for that standing water to be there because not only because of the grooves, but because the runway has angles. So down the length of the runway, the center line is the peak. And then to the left and right sides of the runway, it slopes downward, leading the water away from the runway. Yeah. A lot of good roads are that way, too. Yeah. Roads should be built that way, and runways should, too. They recommended continuing to move toward full certification for the Kingston Airport. Again, it blows my mind they let them land there. That airport wasn't even technically legal. (laughs) And I don't know how it got to that point where they could land there. There must have been some kind of... Uh, interim certification they had, but they didn't have a full certification yet. And they were working toward it, but they really shouldn't have been landing at an airport that wasn't fully certified. And this, everything about this accident proved that. They recommended revising the Pappy Light configuration, which, uh, my understanding of this is actually really confusing. I couldn't fully understand it because there were some lights on the left side of the runway, some lights on the right side of the runway. They were in different configurations, at different calibrations. So apparently this also didn't help them line up with the runway correctly. Like, what's the point of having them if they're not calibrated? Yeah. Exactly. That's pretty much it. They recommended lengthening the CVR recording times on modern transport aircraft to 120 minutes. This has pretty much been done. Yeah. I mean... It's well beyond that now, too. Yeah, it's like 20 hours or something like that. Well, for FDR. I'm not sure about CVR. I think it's at least two hours. Yeah. But they only had 30 minutes to work with on this flight. Which, at the time, was very normal. Yes. That was the standard for a very long time. Yep. They recommended 
that Adis should be recorded and kept for record in the event of an accident. Is which it nowadays? It probably is, but remember that whole thing about they didn't get the Adis. There's no proof that they got the Adis. I know. They but... didn't even know what the Adis was because air traffic controllers didn't keep a record. That's it for their recommendations, but I had one of my own, or rather two, because I felt that they were probably the most critical items, and I'm kind of peeved that they were left out on this super thorough report. Mine was to change the ILS for runway 12, because though I didn't state it, the ILS for runway 12 was three degrees off of lined up with the runway. So actually, as you approach the airport following the ILS... You weren't on you're, center. You're supposed to disengage and make a three-degree turn to line up for the actual center line of the runway at a specific point. So that could have caused problems. They ended up on the center line anyways, because you generally do when you hand fly. So that was minor. But also, the ILS doesn't lead to the touchdown point for runway 1-2. It leads to the threshold. Huh. That's bad. That means That's... that would have them touching down at the threshold rather yeah. than... The touchdown point. And if for whatever reason they were low. So the positive of this being that they had visual contact with the, the airport and they did manage to disconnect from the ILS so that they performed the landing normally, in theory. But then they actually landed long for a whole different set of reasons. But the ILS could have been a problem. The other thing that really peeved me was that they should have made a recommendation to make the RNAV common knowledge and reaffirm to check all the documents for an airport when the airplane is dispatched and that the crew should check all these documents so they know every possible procedure for landing at this airport. There's only one runway with two ends. That it's, only gives so many possibilities for approaches. It's not like Denver that has six. Right. We have like three dozen different types of approaches here at Denver, and you could take any one of them. You, you know, here it doesn't entirely make sense because they help sequence you in. We're busy enough that helps, but... At an airport like this where they're not super busy and there's only one runway with two ends, there was only a couple of options for approaches. They should have at least known the RNAV even existed. And somebody should have brought it up. I don't know why they didn't spend any time recommending anything about the RNAV or designing another form of instrument and precision approach for runway 30, the opposite end, in the event that conditions get bad like this again. That really made me mad. So things that actually did change. They wrote these in the report. American Airlines immediately reduced the 737 tailwind limit back down to 10 knots from 15. Good. Kind of a duh. Yep. The go-around procedures were changed to allow the first officer to call for a go-around and it be complied with. Duh. So American Airlines changed their operating procedures. The Jamaican Civil Aviation Authority required air traffic controllers to be stricter about runway decisions for landing aircraft based on conditions. So, in this case, the air traffic controllers never made a point to actually tell the crew... To use runway 30. And this led to them not even telling them about the RNAV. So, in other words, they should be stricter about it, saying, just so you know, the winds of these conditions, we're not comfortable putting you on runway 12 for landing. We recommend you either use the circle to land or the RNAV for runway 30. So, basically, pushing that on the flight crew. Air traffic controllers should have been pushing that on the flight crew based on the weather conditions. Which ATC can do. They're yes. the ones who the authority, they're the authority there. They're the ones who can say, nope, they're, you're going to use one of these two. They're ultimately in charge unless there's an emergency situation. They make the call with any airplane in their airspace. They tell you what to do. Boeing changed the maintenance manual for the 737 to better avoid the installation issues of the L1 escape slide. 
So they changed the verbiage and the installation instructions for that slide to be a lot more clear so that it doesn't get repacked incorrectly like it did on that airplane. And the runway and safety area was included in the new runway extension plans for Kingston. Like I said, I don't think they really still put much thought into it from the looks of it on Google Maps. It doesn't look like there's an EMAS. No. So that's basically it. That's all. That's the whole of this one. So some things did change. Some things were pretty critical. And I think they did make some things better. But I do agree that Kingston still needs some work. Montego Bay is a much more established airport in Jamaica, amazingly, even though Kingston, I think, is the bigger city. And I'm sure they've changed air traffic control procedures since then. I'm sure they're still more strict about things. And they've probably improved grooving and centerline lighting or reflective paint or what have you there. But regardless, there's a lot that needed fixed. And primarily to me, that would be precision approaches for that airport and the air traffic controller's ability to call for an, a specific runway given the conditions. Also, I think that the flight crews should have just been more aware. I think this was a big breakdown in CRM. and Yeah, I don't think they even should have tried to land there. I think they should have gone to their alternate I don't think the conditions were good enough for them to land at Kingston. Yeah. I think they should have made the decision before they decided to land in Kingston to go to a different airport. And if they did, this wouldn't have happened, so... Yes. I, I agree. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of little things that that went wrong here that added up. And fortunately, nobody died in this case, but it's still some major oversight. There's a lot of things, a lot of things that just shouldn't have happened. So that was American Airlines Flight 331. Thanks again for listening. Go check out the L1011 project. The link is on our website. Mm -hmm. Thanks again to Joseph Mohammed for recommending. We need more stories for this month's story episode. So remember, it's the thank God, thank goodness, thank gosh. Moments. Moments. And yeah. your travels, etc. Check out uh, the listener questions. Thank you to our new patrons. There's Jacob, Anne, and Tom. Tom. So thank you, Jacob, Anne, and Tom for becoming patrons. Woo! Yay! Getting more all the time. We Go listen to them EVPs. It's probably yeah. why you joined, maybe. Or probably. Brendan's incessant nagging on the last <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> on that one episode. We really Either appreciate way, it. thank you very much. Be safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, and we'll catch you next time. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.